0: In 1970, TWA Flight 741 from Israel to New York was hijacked and flown to the Jordanian Desert. Historian Martha Hodes, at the time 12 years old, was on that plane, along with her sister Catherine, who was 13. A group called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was behind the hijacking. Martha Hodes, who teaches 19th century history at New York University, for years only had fuzzy memories of those six days and nights in the desert as a hostage. In the past couple of years, Professor Hodes decided to try to piece together her experience. The result is her book titled My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. Martha Hodes, on September the 6th, 2020, you had a video reunion with some of the people you were on that 741 flight, TWA, 50 years ago. What was that like?
1: Well, that was quite an incredible experience. It was organized by one of the former hostages, a young man who was 17 years old on the plane. I had been 12 years old on the plane. And a number of us had been in touch over the years. Um, I had not been in touch with fellow hostages until I started writing the book. And so this young man, who, by the way, had also written an account, decided 50 years later to call together um, the hostages who were available. Of course, it was over Zoom. This was still the pandemic. And in a way, that made it more inclusive because people could come from all different countries. And we did, and it was quite fascinating. David asked each of us to offer memories and feelings about what had happened. Um, He shared some sources. He had found, I talked about writing this book. I was in the middle of writing it at the time. And some of the hostages I'd already been in touch with on my own, others I made contact with through this reunion and then followed up with them
0: later. So it was really a valuable experience for me. Did you get the impression that Any of them on the screen that you saw are still affected by that experience 50 years later?
1: Well, that's such an interesting question. I think all of us are in some ways affected by it. But, you know, one of the questions I asked when writing the book was, what did this mean to me now so many years later? I had forgotten so much of what had happened. Partly it was because I was a child at the time. Partly it was because so much time had passed, and that was true for everybody, no matter how old they were on the plane. Partly it was because traumatic experiences can be erased in memory. And so one of the parts of the conversations that we had in this reunion that was so interesting was people who were children, especially the young boys, people who were young boys in 1970, remembered the experience as exciting or adventuresome, or they thought that the commandos guns, their weapons were cool. And of course, don't forget that the commandos were nice to the children. They were not nice to everybody, to all of the hostages, but the children had positive experiences in many ways. It was absolutely uh, fascinating for me to learn that some of the other children also had memories that did not feel traumatic at the time, and yet, When we thought back of course there were many things about it that were quite
0: frightening you say that your sister chose not to participate even though she had been with you and a year older than you were why did she not want to participate in the video uh meeting
1: you know my sister and i had different experiences i was 12 she was 13 and her role in the hijacking was uh one of protector for her younger sister she was a buffer for me She did all the hard work. She made sure we weren't separated. She answered the commandos questions. When we were released, she talked to the press. She made sure we had a hotel room for that night. And, you know, my sister was my hero, and she's my hero in the story I tell. But she was also a child, and it was also a traumatic experience for her. And simply to call her my hero erases that trauma. And, you know, My sister was so supportive when I was writing the book. She answered all my questions and she read the manuscript, but she made such a profound statement to me that I think will help answer your question, Brian, which is she said, um, so this is in her voice. She said, you forgot and wanted to remember. That's about me. And then she said in her voice, I remembered and wanted to forget. So she had a much more um, direct and profound experience. And she... It wasn't that she shunned the other hostages, she just didn't She didn't have the need to revisit.
0: Whereas for me, it was an incredible experience to talk again to all of these people. Go back to the date, September 6th, 1970. Tell us the beginning of the story.
1: Sure, so this is September 6th, 1970. As you said, my sister and I are flying back from Tel Aviv to New York. My mother lived in Israel. She was um, somebody, she, both of my parents were dancers, were modern dancers. My mother had helped start the Bathsheba Dance Company. We were visiting her for the summer, flying back for the start of school. And our plane was an around the world flight, and we were on the leg from Tel Aviv to Athens to Frankfurt to New York. The hijackers boarded at Frankfurt. We were maybe an hour or half an hour out of Frankfurt and heard a commotion, people running up the aisle and shouting, I did not understand what they were saying um they ran past us and into the cockpit my sister and i were sitting quite close um, to the first class area because we were in the front of tourist class what what was called tourist class or coach class in those days um at that point from my point of view one of the stewardesses and of course that's what we called flight attendants in those days one of the stewardesses walked down the aisle and said there were some people in the cockpit speaking with the captain. Now, in the course of writing the book, I, I deeply researched everything that had happened inside the cockpit that the stewardess, the stewardess had rapped on the door, the, cock, the captain had opened the door, the hijackers had entered the cockpit, everything that went on in there. Um, And then eventually what happened, you know, people were murmuring to one another, wondering what was going on. Of course, we all thought we were being hijacked to Cuba, which was a relatively harmless stunt or prank in those days. But that's not what it turned out to be. And then we heard an announcement come over the loudspeaker saying that we were being flown to a friendly country with friendly people. And that phrase is something every hostage I spoke with remembered specifically. And um, the person on the on the loudspeaker who was a woman said i am your new captain who has taken over your flight we will be landing in a friendly country with with friendly people um and then of course we landed that night the plane turned around i could see the plane turning around out the window and we landed that night in the jordan desert on an old runway that had not been used for decades and decades
0: where was that runway located compared to say amman Sure, so
1: the runway was about 30 miles northeast of the city of Amman, closer to a city called Zarqa. It was in the middle of the desert in 1970. When I returned to the Jordan Desert as part of my research, I found that much of the area had been built up and the area where we landed was um, a defense plant and access was strictly limited and I was not allowed to visit that area, but we were directed to, A place that overlooked what had been the runway and quite close to it. And so when I say we, I was with my husband, Bruce. He came with me on this trip and we were with a wonderful guide from Jordan who was very helpful to us. And so we drove to a spot that overlooked where we had sat in the desert for a week inside the plane. And that was in
0: 2019. Who were the hijackers and how many of them were on that plane you were on? There were two hijackers on our plane. The hijackers were members of a group called
1: the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. They were a Marxist, Leninist, revolutionary group who were a faction of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. The PLO had been founded in 1964. The PFLP was founded in 1967. Um, Their founder was a man named George Habash. He was a physician. He was a Christian. So just to be clear, there isn't a straight line from our hijacking to 9-11. Our hijackers were not Muslim jihadists. As I said, they were Marxist-Leninists. They believed in a secular, democratic, pluralistic state for Muslims, Christians, Jews, and of course, atheists. They were Marxists. Um, And the hijackers were never identified, so they were never apprehended, but they were two members of this group. When we landed, they exited the plane and melted into a crowd of commandos who were waiting for the arrival of our plane in the desert. And I should just say the Popular Front was a minority within the PLO, but an influential minority. They were much more radical than other parts of the PLO who did not support the tactic and strategy of hijacking.
0: How many people were on your plane?
1: There were about 150 people on the TWA plane. There were two other planes that landed in the desert as well. Altogether, about 300 hostages. Um, but then they were the hostages were released in stages. My sister and I were kept um, for a week. Uh, everybody who remained on the planes remained there for a week, after which, when the planes were evacuated, the commandos blew up the planes. But some people were removed from the plane the second night, um, some were some of those people were released and then others were removed during the week and taken elsewhere in Amman and Jordan. My sister and I were among those who remained on the plane in the desert for a week.
0: A BOAC plane, a Swiss airplane. And then I understand an LL plane that didn't get there and what happened? why owned by the Israelis, why didn't the LL plane uh, succeed in whoever it was in hijacking them to the desert?
1: Yes. So exactly right. So on the day on September sixth, the TWA Trans World Airlines, our plane was hijacked. A Swiss airplane was hijacked. We both landed in the desert. On the same day, I should also say, a Pan Am flight was hijacked to Cairo. The passengers evacuated and the plane blown up. Before that happened, the third plane that was supposed to land in the desert was just as you said, an LL plane. That hijacking was foiled in midair because El Al had armed guards on their planes. There were two hijackers on that plane. One was the famed Palestinian hijacker and activist Leila Khaled. Um, She was tackled to the ground by the passengers. The other was an accomplice of hers named Patrick Arguello, and he was shot by one of the armed guards and did not survive. And then the El Al pilot who had put the plane into a nosedive when the Passengers were, were wearing their seatbelts, but the hijackers were standing, and therefore they fell to the ground and were then attacked by the passengers. The LL pilot landed his plane in London, and Leila Khaled was then apprehended and um, taken to a, a jail in London. So that was foiled, and then two of the accomplices of Leila Khaled and Patrick Arguello were the people who um, uh, hijacked the Pan Am plane. And then the BOAC, let me just add, on September 9th, on Wednesday, three days later, the BOAC plane was successfully hijacked to the desert. Amazing, if you think about it, that after all those hijackings on Sunday, that security was lax enough that another plane was hijacked successfully to the desert.
0: As you know, LL has always had a tremendous security, uh, successful security uh, when, you, when you want to get on the plane and, and you're there. What about in those times when you were getting on that TWA plane in Israel, what kind of security was there on that day?
1: Well, I don't remember specifically, but I did a lot of research on what kind of security existed at the time. And it was by our standards post 9-11 today, it was extremely meager. Um, first of all, airports and airlines were responsible for security, not the U.S. government. So there were instances in which Ticket agents would be looking through people's bags. There were metal detectors, but they were voluntary and they were very crude by our standards today. There was no systematic going through security the way we know today. Um, And also, um, most of the security about hijacking was geared toward Cuba. So there was what the airline industry called psychological profiling, but it, but it was geared toward people who might wanna take a plane to Cuba. And also the airlines were very worried about alienating passengers, uh, their consumers. And there was, you know, there was a fight between the airlines who didn't want these security measures and the US government. And even after much more intensive security measures were put into place after Sunday, September 6th, it's still a mystery how that British airliner was successfully hijacked.
0: What about the Swiss Air? What about it? Yeah. What? What was? Where did that come from? And how? How many people were on that plane? Yes. So the Swiss airplane came from. Was flying from Zurich to New York, and probably
1: about the same number of passengers as on the TWA plane, and certainly the same kind of lack security. Um, and what was interesting was the Swiss airplane came in later that evening. So we on the TWA plane heard what sounded like bursts of thunder, rolling thunder, but no rainstorm followed. And then we learned that another plane had been hijacked and the landing had been quite precarious. I mean, our captain had to deal with landing in a desert with a very rudimentary runway. The Swiss air captain had to deal with the same thing with another plane in the same spot. And that was quite dramatic, as we later learned. And then, of course, the BOAC captain had to deal with two planes on this meager desert runway. Um, And of course, um, we were all very
0: aware of the arrival of the BOAC plane because that one happened in daylight hours. What have you done in your life since this happened? Give us just the background up to this time. Sure. So let's see, I was 12 years old. So um,
1: I went on to college and um, I thought that I would be an English major because I always wanted to be a writer. But I ended up being a religion major in college. And looking back, I think it was, um, it was a way for me to reckon with the divine, reckon with greater forces. I was brought up in a very, very secular Jewish family, no kind of religious education. And I studied world religion, not just, not just um, Christianity and Judaism, but world religion. That was very interesting. I went on to get a master's degree, also studying comparative religion at Harvard Divinity School, and then I made a shift. From the study of religion to the study of history, I got a PhD in history at Princeton, and I always considered it a shift from studying abstract ideas to studying people's lives. What happened was when I was at Harvard Divinity School, I had a work study job um, to help pay for my tuition at Radcliffe's Women's History Library. I was working on processing archival collections and I just found myself so interested in people's letters and people's diaries and I began to want to study and write about not the abstractions but but people's concrete doings and and what what they did with their lives and so I applied for um PhD programs and I got my PhD in, in 19th century US history at Princeton and I wrote before this book I wrote three books on 19th century US history obviously quite different enterprises from this first book. And I'm happy to talk more about that if you'd like. And where do you teach and how long have you been there? I teach at New York University. I have been there for, oh, probably 25 years. Um, My first job out of grad school was at University of California, Santa Cruz. I was there for three years and then wanting to come back to the East Coast. I was lucky to get the job at NYU. I teach undergraduates. I teach graduate students. I teach, of course, I teach 19th century united states i teach courses on the civil war and race but i also teach courses that are related to other enterprises that have helped me with this book i teach a course on autobiography and history i teach courses about um, experimental history different ways of writing history Um, i teach courses on writing i teach students to think and care about writing i teach my students to think about why particular people told the stories they told in archival documents and that was very useful to me in this book. I had to ask myself why did I tell the story the way I told it in my own diary, which was one of my sources.
0: Where had you kept the diary that you used when you were 12 years old on that plane all these years?
1: I had this diary that I had with me because I wrote in it every day of the summer, every day of my life, I wrote my diary. I brought it with me on the plane. I wrote in it every day. And I had had diaries from about the time I was 12 until probably my mid thirties. And they were all in a carton, in a closet, in a room, in my home. And I hadn't looked back at this diary in decades. I really, I'm quite sure that I had not looked back at it since really since probably the week I returned home and it was amazing to find it for me and what was most interesting to me as a historian as a writer and just as myself was to see that I had assumed the diary would be my trusted scaffolding around which I would write this book What I quite quickly learned was, although I wrote every day and each day in the diary had its own printed full page, um, quite a substantial number of lines. There was quite a bit that I left out of the diary and the main things I left out were things that frightened me and my own emotions. And that's in a way what the book is about, recovering, trying to recover. Um, Not recovered memory, I should say, that's quite a debunked enterprise, but recovering what, reconstructing what happened. Reconstructing what happened on the plane and doing that by what historians call parallel accounts. So in other words, if your evidence is quite scant, you look to other people in the same time and place who had a similar experience. So, for me, that was reading all the newspapers, um, reading the government documents, reading the telegrams that were sent back and forth between Amman and New York, um, between the embassies, going to the Nixon Library, reading the um, conversations and correspondence between President Nixon and Henry Kissinger, who was his national security advisor. Of course, speaking with other hostages and their experiences, speaking with my sister, um, reading the words and the motivations of our captors um, in, their, in their printed publications, on their archives, um, in a way to reconstruct what happened to me, which is not the same as what happened to everybody else. In a way, that's why I call the book my hijacking. It is only my experience, not that of others.
0: So what's your, what's your first memory when you started going through the research of that six days? Yeah. So great question, because what I do in the book is in the
1: very first chapter, I lay out my very fragmented memories. My first memory is what I described to you a moment ago about people running up the aisle shouting. And then I do remember the announcement coming over the loudspeaker. And I do remember the plane turning around, looking out the window and seeing the plane turn around. After that, things become quite hazy. I think I have some memory of the plane landing. I remember that my sister and I were moved up to the first class section, which allowed us to have these wide seats where we could sleep. And I never knew why that was. And during the research, I came and I I sought out and found and and remained in contact with the wonderful, wonderful man who was the co-pilot who recently passed away, very sadly. And he filled me in on uh, some of what I didn't understand. And what he told me was that um, the crew wanted to be sure that if the plane had to be evacuated upon landing, if it was unsafe, they needed people up front who could move quickly And they also didn't want a lot of weight up front. So as he described it to me, two skinny girls were perfect. You know, we could move fast and we weren't going to overload the front of the plane with too much weight. So we were chosen to sit up in the first class section for the landing. And then we were moved back into tourist class after we landed.
0: What was the Popular Front after?
1: The Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine wanted the same thing that all of the Palestinian resistors and activists wanted, which was the return of the land of Palestine to the inhabitants who had been there when the nation of Israel was founded. So the PLO, Yasser Arafat, they all agreed with the PFLP. The difference was the PFLP did not sanction any sort of diplomacy. So their tactic was armed resistance, They did not believe in any sort of recognition or negotiation with the nation of Israel. Um, They had an interesting relationship to other members of the PLO because their causes were the same, but their strategies were different. And many of the members of the PLO were quite um, dissatisfied, not only with the hijacking, but also with blowing up the planes at, at the end, you know, once, once everybody had been evacuated. And I should say, um, it was the internal policy of the PFLP not to harm anyone. But of course, when you are on a hostage taking mission, you can tell that to your hostages, but you can't tell that to the world or your mission will not succeed. The hijacking did two things. It brought attention to the cause of Palestinians, which was part of their mission. That's very much what they were after, to bring this before the world. And I noticed when I was reading all the newspaper coverage in the mainstream press, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, that there was a lot of discussion and empathy for the Palestinian cause, people saying this isn't going to go away, we need to address this. The other thing the hijacking did, though, was it was it harmed the cause and that people did not approve of the strategy of hostage-taking among innocent civilians. So it did both of those things at the same time.
0: They passed out postcards to you. To do what with? Yes.
1: So they passed out, the commandos passed out postcards to the hostages on my plane, and they asked us to write notes to our government, asking the U.S. government to... Um, Participate in the negotiations and to see that the commandos got what they wanted. And that also goes back to your last question. So, part of what the commandos were after was the release of seven Palestinian prisoners who were in Swiss and West German jails. And they were there for other airport attacks that had happened over the years. Some were awaiting trial and some had been incarcerated. And they also wanted a large number of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails to be released. And that's where. The foiling of the LL hijacking was problematic because it gave them many fewer Israeli citizens as exchange. And so the American citizens were stand-ins for the Israeli citizens in their negotiations. Now, the postcards. My sister and I um, were learning what we didn't, you know, something we didn't know about Israel and Palestine. We didn't know about the Palestinian cause. We were interested in the cause of our captors. Again, they were nice to us as children. They told us their stories. We felt sorry for them. But we were worried about our parents and what they thought was going on. Don't forget, there were no cell phones. There was no contact. You know, as far as we knew, the whole world had forgotten about us. So we wrote a postcard to our father and stepmother in New York saying, and it's reproduced in the book I won't get the words exactly but basically saying don't worry about us we're fine lots of people are looking out for us it was this very sweet very optimistic little postcard and we gave it to the commandos they were going to mail it and lo and behold it arrived at my father's address although not until weeks after we had
0: returned home so what happened to you those six days eventually and when did you get out of Jordan and how
1: so six days and six nights, we sat on the plane, inside the plane. It was very hot during the day, very hot. It was very cold during the night. You know, people did things like cut up the curtains that separated first class from tourist class to make blankets. What did we do? Every time I asked a fellow hostage, you know, what did we do during that week on the plane? Their first answer was nothing. We did nothing. Nobody could remember. What did we do? Nothing. Nothing. But that wasn't really true. We talked. We read whatever was on board. People had cards. We played cards. We played guessing games. People had birthdays. We celebrated birthdays. People prayed. We sang. We sang songs. We changed the lyrics to songs. One of my favorites, as I say in the book, um, the hit single that summer was Peter, Paul and Mary's Leaving on a Jet Plane. We sang living on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again or don't know if I'll be back again. We thought that was funny. Looking back, it, it felt sad to me, but it made us laugh. It distracted us. Uh, we sang Yellow Submarine as we all live on a white TWA. You know, People had all kinds of funny lyrics. People made friends. There was also hostility um, among the hostages because people's nerves were frayed. Somebody was snoring too loudly. Somebody was hogging whatever food was left. There was also between hostages and captors, captives and captors, friendly relations and unfriendly relations so you know as i've said as children they were nice to us they jumped rope with us they let us out of the plane a couple of times for air and exercise maybe two or three times they played games with the kids they gave the commandos gave us piggyback rides they showed us um you know you could see there was a mirage of water on the horizon and one of the commandos explained to the children the scientific workings of a mirage there were also, and I didn't know this until I researched the books, there were interrogation sessions that went on at night where grown-ups would be called to the front of the plane and interrogated about their ties to Israel. That was a very frightening experience for a lot of people. Um, that was very interesting for me to learn about. I didn't know that it happened. I slept through it, even though we were near first class. So all of this went on for six days and six nights. And then on, we arrived on a Sunday night, the following Saturday morning, we were told to collect our belongings. We did, we went down the ladder, there were vans waiting on the sand. Um, I didn't know any of this until I researched it. It was an agreement between the Popular Front and the Jordanian army. We were driven to the capital city of Amman, to the Intercontinental Hotel. At that time, there was a war, an unofficial war going on between the Popular Front and the Jordanian government in Amman. It was not Palestinians versus Jordanians. It was not that simple. Many Palestinians in Jordan identified with the resistors. Many of them did not agree with their strategy. They were Many Palestinians along with Jordanian citizens were very dismayed by the violence going on around them. I bring that up because the Intercontinental Hotel was a center of this violence. The hotel was shot up with bullet holes and broken glass. I didn't notice that. I have no memory of that. But in my sources, that was very, very apparent. We were brought to the hotel. It was a very chaotic scene. I don't have a lot of memories of that, but I've seen pictures. I've seen raw footage. I watched raw footage that news reporters took. It was amazing to see that. Um, one of the hostages provided me with a snippet of footage that he had found where you can see somebody leading my sister and me into the hotel. There we are. Quite amazing to see that for me. And then we, the hotel was full up with reporters and some of the hostages who had been released earlier in the week. My sister and I were then taken to a smaller, a different hotel, just a few blocks away. And we spent the night there with a number of other girls and one young woman in a room, five beds stuck together in a room. I also went back to that hotel and I met with the owner who was 23 at the time. And then in his seventies, when I went back, he remembered very well. Of course, it was very traumatic for the people living in Amman. He was very kind to me, showed me the room where we had stayed. It was a wonderful experience. And then the next morning we flew to the island
0: of Cyprus. And then from there we flew to New York and so you got back home who was waiting for you at the airport
1: at the airport my father and stepmother were waiting for us i have some memory of this i should say on one of my research return visits i went back to the twa terminal which if anybody knows the history of architecture was this futuristic terminal that had been built in the 1960s had been closed for decades because it really was obsolete with the development of much larger jets but recently reopened as the TWA Hotel and Museum. And so before it had opened officially, um, I went back there and got a tour from one of the PR people who was very kind to us, showed me exactly, you, know, you would have come through this passage here, here's where your father would have been waiting. Um, what, I, what I do remember and what's very important about our return was that my father, you know, he obviously, he and my mother both and stepmother, of them suffered very much during this but my father remembers that as soon as we saw him we ran into his arms and my sister said oh dad we were so worried about you and that was true we were very worried about him but it also was reassuring to him because it gave him a sense that we hadn't suffered so much and that's also partly what the book is about we were very intent on reassuring our father we didn't want him to worry and as a result I didn't think for all those years. I didn't think about the trauma that we had gone through. And I use trauma in a, you in a, um, know, colloquial, not a, not so much a clinical sense. Um, but that story my father told over and over again across the years. That that's what my sister had, the first word she said to him in a way erases some some of what had happened that that wasn't as as sweet and endearing as that. Um, and so the return that moment was a moment where. I think, at least on my part, I began to reassure my father that it really wasn't so bad. And that was a way of ignoring a lot of what had happened and erasing a lot of what had happened.
0: Among the Swiss plane, the British plane, and the TWA plane, any of those hostages, any people involved in it, lose their lives? No,
1: nobody lost their lives. The only person who lost a life was the companion of Leila Khaled on the LL flight shot by the Um, L.L. Guard. Nobody's lives were lost. It's one of the reasons that in the book, in part one of the book, I tell the story briefly from beginning to end. I wanted to establish nobody died. That was the intent of the PFLP, that no one should die, no one should be hurt, although that's not necessarily what they told their captives. But nobody did. Nobody lost their lives. Everybody came home by the end of September. We were held for a week, a group of about 50 hostages were, were held for two weeks longer in different areas around the city of Amman in different places. And that group of hostages had, had a very difficult experience because there was a war going on around them between the Palestinian insurgents and the Jordanian army,
0: immediately outside the walls of where they were. You teach writing. You've done three other books besides this. I've got to ask you about your technique using The little prince
1: oh thank you for asking that question yes so much so um in the book as readers will find i insert quotations about one per chapter from the story the little prince a well-known book i found by reading my diary that i had first read the little prince that summer the summer i was 12 years old my israeli stepfather had given my sister and me a copy i read it i wrote in my diary It was fantastic, I believe that's an exact quotation. I remember reading it more than once, my Israeli stepfather read it to us, I read it myself. I feel like I almost had it memorized and that's one of the reasons I felt like putting those quotations in um, was helpful. Um, I also found by reading the account that another hostage had shared with me that we had talked with her on the plane about The Little Prince, because The Little Prince is about an aviator who's stranded in a desert, and then he meets this character, uh, The Little Prince. And so we talked about the beauty of the desert, we talked about that book. So that book had been very important to me that summer. And what was so um, interesting to me as I was rereading it, was so many of the words in that story, in that very, very simple, very simply told book, seemed to pertain to my story. So I'll, I'll just I'll just give our listeners a couple of examples. Um, When I write about my sister and I learning about the plight of Palestinian refugees, I use a quotation that goes like this in parentheses. I write, and once again, said the aviator to the little prince, without understanding why, I had a queer sense of sorrow. Perfect explanation. I didn't understand all the history, but I felt sorry for people, and then, you would ask Brian about returning or return um, at JFK airport. And one of the things um, that my stepmother told me, because I also spoke with her, she said, she was amazed that when we saw my father, that we were so composed and she described it in her words, no crying, no tears, ready to go. And then right after that, I put in a quotation about the little prince that goes like this, nothing about him said the aviator in the little prince, gave any suggestion of a child lost in the middle of the desert. Perfect, obviously a different context in that book, but I found so many parts of the book that spoke to me. And the last thing I'll say about that is my use of that, you use the word technique, it reflects my inability to express my own feelings at that time at 12 years old. And so I was able to invoke the words
0: of someone else to do part of that job. You say you teach, Do you teach how to write an autobiography or about autobiography?
1: Yeah, so I teach this wonderful class I love so much called Autobiography and History. It's an undergraduate seminar. And what I have the students do is I have them read the work of writers, often scholars, often historians who write about their own lives in historical context. So writers who... Don't just write from memory, which is, in a way, the conventional definition of memoir, but writers who who I would consider my book a deeply researched memoir. Others would consider memoirs. One of your past guests, Peter Osnos, he called his book a reported memoir. The same would go for the reporter David Carr, his wonderful book, Night of the Gun, a reported memoir, an investigative reporter. Then what I do, these are college students, so they haven't lived a long life, but you know they're in their teens like teens or early 20s, I have them write about a part of their own life researching the historical context around it. So first I have them just write a memory of something they want to write about. And so just to give one random example, um, there was a student who had grown up in China and she had a memory about um, when the Olympics were in China and going to see it and what that meant to her. Then I have the students research what they remember. And this was true for this student and true for many other students. Once they do the contextual research, they see how fragmented and sometimes unreliable their own memories can be. And that's the point of the exercise to understand, and the point of the class, to understand the relationship of memory to history in their own lives.
0: So what triggered this whole idea that you've had of writing this book? Write the book.
1: It had been almost 50 years it did feel unresolved i will say that um although i'm very clear in the book and i'm very adamant about the fact that there's no straight line from our hijacking to 9-11 it is undeniable that 9-11 triggered feelings and memories of this hijacking and it was something i almost never talked about but after 9-11 i found myself thinking and talking about it more and my sister and i who had never talked about it since we'd gotten home began to talk a little bit about it. It took me almost 15 more years after that to begin researching the book. I thought at first I was just researching it for myself. Um, I went to the TWA archives. I found files, folders about this hijacking. I read through them. I found the papers of a fellow hostage at another archive. I read through those. And then I guess I began to feel that I wanted to connect me, the grown-up historian who had written about other people's lives, other people's adversities and losses and grief, which is in some ways what all my books have been about. I wanted to connect that grown-up historian to the 12-year-old girl who I was then, who remembered so little about this experience that was a world historical event. It wasn't a famous, it, it faded from view after in Tebe and after the Munich Olympics, Munich Olympics in 72 and in Tebe in 1976, which is what many people think about when they think about the 70s and hijacking. But it was at the time um, the greatest episode of air piracy in, in, in the history of air piracy. And I had been there. I had been part of this world historical event, and I wanted to make those connections as a historian and as a memoirist. I wanted to put those together. And it was it was quite a journey to do so, but I'm very glad that I did it.
0: What's the story of your research ending up talking to a woman named Alice Kessler Harris? Yes, so Alice
1: Kessler Harris is a fellow historian. She is a very distinguished historian at Columbia University, uh, now emeritus in the history department. Alice and I have been friends for years. And I had been presenting my research to a writing group, a group of historians who present work in progress to one another. This was several years into writing the book. And one of the attenders at this workshop said, you know, Alice Kessler Harris was on the LL plane in 1970. I had no idea. She and I had never talked about it. It had never come up. Why would it? And so I got in touch with her, dear Alice, And I remember something I always said when I wrote to to fellow hostages, you you may not wanna talk about this, I completely understand if you don't wanna talk about it, but I was on the LL plane and she wrote back, I'm blown away, let's talk. And we met at a cafe up by Columbia. We sat there for hours telling each other our stories, very different stories both of us aghast at what the other had experienced. I mean, obviously, Alice was aghast that I had been a hostage in the desert for a week, but I found myself utterly aghast that Alice had been on this LL plane. She and her young daughter were sitting behind the hijackers, and they witnessed everything. So, you know, there were, there were gunshots, there was blood. Everything came when the pilot did this nosedive. All the suitcases, all the china came crashing down. Alice's daughter said to her very movingly, she turned to her mother and said, you mean I'm never going to see my daddy again? So very, very traumatic and intense. Um, very different experiences. And now that is something that Alice and I know that we share that we didn't know in all the years of our um, being colleagues and friends before this. How
0: did you do this? How did I do what? The the research, uh, the plan for the book, the, how did you sell it to Harper?
1: Yes. So um, great question. I be- As I said before, I began to research for myself. I didn't think I was going to write a book about it. I had just finished this book called Morning Lincoln about personal responses to Lincoln's assassination. I had some time. I always take time in between books. And then I was meeting with my agent in her office and throwing around different ideas for books and I told her you know i've been researching something I I spent some of the summer researching and I told her about the hijacking and that I had been there. Her dog was lying at her feet his sweet golden doodle the dog gets up walks over to me puts his front paws on my knees and looks up into my face. And I said to my agent what's going on, and she said oh Farley can tell when someone's in distress. I did not even know I was in distress when I was talking about the hijacking. The dog could tell something that I couldn't, so that was a clue. My memory is that my agent said, this has to be your next book. She remembers it differently, there you go, unreliable memory. And then I thought, I will I will do this, I will set out to do this. Um, I was lucky enough to get two wonderful fellowships, one by the Guggenheim Foundation and one at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library, where you're in residence for a year and you have all of the resources of the library, um, which I use to research context in all kinds of ways. I went to many archives, just a few examples. I went to the archives of the International Red Cross in Geneva, Switzerland. The International Red Cross had been negotiators. They had files on the hijacking. I read through State Department archives. As I said before, I went to the Nixon Library. I watched all the news reports from that week that were on television. Of course, I read all the newspaper coverage. Plan for the book. It changed shapes many times, Brian. I drafted and redrafted. I worked with a wonderful editor at HarperCollins. You said, how did I sell the book? My agent sold it to HarperCollins. Wonderful editor, Jonathan Jo, who immediately understood the book. He got the book. He helped me shape it. He um, helped me find ways to tell the story that was, um, more about myself than about other people my early drafts were much more populated by my fellow hostages and he was the one who said this needs to be about you and that was hard for me because I'm a historian I write about other people but he helped me do that um and writing the book was was both easy and hard it was it was writing's never easy but it was it was so um interesting to me to put together all of the different um, corroborations of what had happened, and that's what historians do. If one person says something happened, it's much less meaningful than if ten people say it happened. Um, and you know, I said the book is called My Hijacking because it's my story. Your story depended on where you were sitting on the plane, what you thought about the politics of Israel and Palestine. So this is my story, but I did have a lot of corroboration in all of these sources, um, and so it was easy to figure out what happened, more of a challenge to tell the story. And also there was a certain reliving in telling it as your readers and as your listeners and readers of the book will find out part of what I wanted to do was to recreate the circumstances and recover a kind of fear that I was not able to think about and, and wasn't able to experience. Um, Since the hijacking, and I won't give this away, but in the end of the book, I never really recover that fear, but I recover other emotions that are important to the story
0: I tell, mostly about my family and my childhood. How often, excuse me, how often did somebody you were contacting who had been on the plane refuse to talk to you?
1: Not often. It did happen. Um, There was a case of one of the flight attendants, one of the stewardesses who I remembered very well, and I was... I didn't contact her directly, but somebody at TWA was kind enough, or who worked for TWA no longer exists, but who works for the, the former TWA association, contacted her and then wrote back to me and said, she, she doesn't wish to speak about this. And 100%, I completely understand. Um, I, I totally understand why somebody wouldn't want to relive that experience. Most people I contacted were eager to speak, were kind, were friendly, were interested. Um, I wouldn't call what I did interviews they were conversations because we were all comparing memories and most of the people I contacted were people I remembered and that meant that many of them were teens or young people at the time many many people whose names I found on the passenger's list I had no recollection of Who was Fuzzy? Ah uh, Fuzzy yes um she was a 19-year-old woman who was also, of course, um, had spent the summer in Israel and was flying back. And she was amazing. She was somebody, so in my memory, she took my sister and me under her wing. She cared for us. She looked out for us. She was so funny. She kept us laughing. And then when I found her again and talked with her, we met again um, almost 50 years later, what I learned was that although she was very modest about it, she had taken care of many of the unaccompanied children on the plane, but like all angels, she had made us feel as if we were her only concern. So she was the one person my sister remembered. Um, We both, you know, she she was impossible to forget her. She, She stayed by our side. The last night before we were released, when nobody was sure what was happening, she took the middle seat in our row of three people. We both slept um, each with uh, our heads on one of her shoulders. Um, She was also someone who was kept, she was one of five young women who were kept two weeks longer. So when we got home, we knew that she wasn't yet home, and that was very disturbing to us. When she did finally come home, she came to visit us in New York. Um, So we had a reunion with her and I I found in the course of my research that we had been in touch with her for some months after the hijacking and then we had lost touch. Very important person to us. Why did they keep her two weeks longer? So at the end of the week, by the end of a week, um, when negotiations weren't getting anywhere, the Popular Front came to see that it was unsustainable just in terms of health and sanitation to keep all of these passengers on these planes in the desert. And so they released most of the hostages, but they held back about 50 hostages. um, And she was one of them. Most of them were men, there were five women altogether who were held and that they became their bargaining chips in what went on through the end of September. But um, their captivity was cut short by the escalation of the war between Palestinian insurgents and the Jordanian army. And although the Palestinian insurgents had some success early in the war, by the end of September, they were losing the war and losing badly. And so they released all of the hostages um,
0: and and everybody came home, including Fuzi. Did the seven Palestinians, were they released from prison in the bargaining? They were.
1: So those seven Palestinians were released, along with Leila Khaled, who was in prison in uh, in jail in England, in, in Great Britain, she was released as well, and that was that was part of the deal. Um, no Palestinian prisoners from Israel, which was really you know a major demand of the PFLP. None of that ever happened. Um, so so that was that was um, a loss for them. But those prisoners were released, and as I said, um, our hijackers. None of the hijackers were ever caught or prosecuted in any way
0: all three planes blown up and was there anything left of them anywhere in a museum around the world so yes
1: all of the three planes were blown up and they were they were i should say that the planes were wired with dynamite the night we landed and that was a memory that i kept with me but never wrote about in my diary and and a fairly traumatic memory because you know there was there was a sense that this plane could blow up with the passengers on it which is what our captors were telling the world, although at various times they assured us of their of our safety, although not all the time. Um, so as we were being driven out of the desert in these vans, the planes were blown up. The van I was in, which left first, we heard the explosion but didn't see it. Some of the hostages who were in the later vans in the convoy saw the explosion in front of their eyes and that was also um, quite a dramatic experience. Um, then the planes were left smoldering in the desert I believe at that point, um, members of the different airlines were able to go out to the desert and see these smoldering remains. I mean, there was virtually nothing left. There was nothing left that was valuable. TWA had, of course, flown people to Amman in hopes of coming out to the desert, seeing what the hostages were experiencing and reporting back. But the TWA personnel never got out to the desert until after we were released and the planes were exploded.
0: What was the hardest part of your
1: research? The hardest part of my research was the quest to recover the emotions that I knew I had felt on the plane. So, you know, historians always count documents and evidence closest to the time and place of what we're studying as the most reliable. I had a recorded interview that my sister and I gave within a week of getting home, maybe five days after we got home, we we gave this interview to an alternative Boston Weekly. Um, I should say an older cousin of mine who was a freelance journalist was the one who was interviewing us. We barely knew him at the time. And in that interview, my sister says that I, Martha, that I was very frightened. So that was very close to the time of what had happened. And so I trusted that. And there was also there were also many other documents. There was a there was a report written by the International Red Cross doctor who talked about how frightened the passengers were. And also, just logically, I had to have been frightened. But I couldn't, I couldn't recover that feeling. And so I spent all of these years while I was writing the book trying to reconstruct what had happened in hopes of recovering that fear. The closest I came, and this was a very difficult moment in the research, I had a memory that on the plane, our captors had handed out brown manila envelopes of what some of the hostages called propaganda. And so it was was a speech that George Habash, the founder of the Popular Front, had given that June about the cause of the Palestinians, the plight and cause of the Palestinians. And I remembered reading it and thinking, although I didn't understand all of it, thinking that it was very sad. And I found those pages in the National Archives. I found those crumbling white pages that looked exactly as i remembered the only thing i remembered was that it opened with an apology it was something like ladies and gentlemen we are sorry to have put you through this we are sorry to have to trouble you let me explain our cause and there was that line in front of my eyes okay so i found it in the archive i scanned it on my phone i didn't read it i had the document i did not read that document brian for about two and a half years because i knew it would bring me back to that moment inside the plane. And I did read the document when I finally read it in a very quiet space that I set up for myself. It was a moment I felt myself slipping back. I read it from beginning to end, but it was, it was hard to do because it was the closest I came to feeling like that 12 year old girl in that plane who, who was afraid and who was sad and who was worried about my father and my mother and worried about what would happen to
0: us. And that was the closest I
1: came to that feeling.
0: By the way, how many different summers? <clears throat> excuse me, summers did you go to Israel with your mother we spent, there?
1: Yeah, six or seven summers in Israel, and it was it was a a happy place for us. It was a happy place because we spent these beautiful, carefree summers in Tel Aviv, which was really um, quite a small city in those days. And we ran around freely and had friends. And my mother was in the dance world, and the dancers loved us. We went to the studio. Of course as children of divorce it was also sad to be away from our father and then to be away from our mother but my principal memories of summers in Israel were were a, a place of of carefree fun
0: times Where is your sister today
1: My sister uh lives in western Massachusetts she is um she is a social worker i should say she started out her professional life as an actress and i sometimes think she did that because you know it was my sister when we came home who was willing to talk about how afraid we were and how difficult it was. And I didn't want to hear that and it was hard for my father to hear. And so in a way she was silenced, I write about this in the book. And so um, this is my analysis, not hers, but you know, to become an actress, to be on a stage in front of a rapt audience where you can express the emotions of the characters you're playing was a way for her to do that. Then she changed professions and became a social worker. She works with victims of domestic violence. And in a way, and again, this is my analysis, not hers, but, you know, it's it's a way to reckon with family troubles and not to turn away from family troubles, but to face those challenges. And she's done that her whole life. And I admire her greatly
0: for doing that. How many of the 300 in the three different planes were Jewish? Um, I don't
1: know that number, but that is an important question for this reason. The narrative about these hijackings, and I haven't checked lately, but this was also true on Wikipedia, and the incorrect narrative is that um, the PFLP separated Jews from non-Jews. That is not what happened. What happened was the second night we were there, a number of people were removed from the plane, and we were all standing in the desert, on the desert floor, and some people, it was a frightening situation, I admit, we were surrounded by commandos and their weapons, Then a group of people were put on vans and driven, released, to the Intercontinental Hotel in Amman, and others of us were put back on the plane. Everybody who was released that night was not Jewish. And because of that, people began to make that distinction of Jews versus non-Jews. However, very important, what I learned in my research, first of all, and I did know this, many of the people who remained on the plane, who were never brought out to the desert floor that night, were not Jewish. So many of the people on the plane were also not Jewish. And that same night, um, Jews from the Swiss airplane were released to Amman. So it was not strict Jews and non-Jews. Um, of the 50 people or 52 people held for two weeks, about two thirds were not Jewish. Um, another reason I think for that misconception is that um, The night we landed the commandos questioned everybody took our passports and questioned everybody and one of the questions they asked is are you jewish now there was a lot written about this and diplomats have written about this and people have spoken about this um the pflp was very clear that they made a distinction between jews and zionists um nothing against jews obviously very anti-zionist defining zionism as um, their Palestinian homeland as a nation state for Jews, which is not how everybody defines Zionism, but that's how they defined it. Um, they asked that question because they were trying to determine people's ties to Israel and how valuable they would be in exchange for their own, um, for the prisoners they wanted released. But asking that question was admitted later, was problematic because it gave the impression that they were identifying people as Jews or non Jews. Um after that night, that distinction was never made again by our captors. Um, the people who were held on the plane for a week were a mix, the people who were held a mix of Jews and non-Jews, and the people who were held um, longer were Jews and non-Jews. Um, there was um, you know, th- there were people of all religions um, who were held longer. Um, People on the plane who were Jews, you know, might have had their own, certainly had their own feelings about that. There were a number of Holocaust survivors, people who had been children during the Holocaust. Even though the Holocaust was a Christian European enterprise, the Arabs had nothing to do with it. They were triggered by the situation. Um, I had said earlier, my sister and I felt sorry for captors who told us stories about losing their homes in 1948 when they were children we also felt sorry for the holocaust survivors who had been children during the holocaust as i say in the book we felt sorry for everyone and as i also say in the book we couldn't think of a solution you know we wanted to think of a solution and we we couldn't think of a way to solve the problem of people losing their homes and we wanted to go home too so for us we were surrounded by Stories of children and home, and that's what we were experiencing. And that was both moving and elicited empathy and also contributed to, the, to our trauma. Uh,
0: as we close out, when you think back <clears throat> of all the research you did, how would you describe the volume of news coverage on September the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th in the United States compared to other tragedies we've seen uh, since that time?
1: Yes, so um, as I said before, there was no contact with the outside world, although reporters would come from Amman out to the desert every day and film the planes and talk to some of the hostages. And this was recounted to me by one of the hostages I spoke with. Um, At one point, one of the hostages said to one of the reporters, we have no contact, we're on a news blackout. Um, What's going on in the world? And the reporter said, you are the news. You are the only news. So we were, I mean, it was covered from end to end, one of the things I did when I read the coverage in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, alternative weeklies, all kinds of papers was I also took note of other kinds of stories that were in the news. We were the headlines um, and pretty, you know, in those days, the New York Times didn't run very big headlines. It was quite a staid front page that they ran, but the headlines were very big. Um, We were in the news every single day that my sister and I were on that plane through our release, so that would have been September 6th through September 14th. After that, um, although there were still hostages being held, it receded a little bit. Um, but it was really, um, it was really end-to-end coverage. And the same, you know, I, I, I use the resources of the Vanderbilt News Archive, which has archived all of the television news from the three main networks in 1970: ABC, CBS, and NBC. Every night, Walter Cronkite, Harry Reasoner, all of the main anchors, you know, if you're from that era, you will know those names. We were the top story. It was, it was a really big deal.
0: The name of the book is My Hijacking, <clears throat> Subtitle: A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. And our guest has been Martha Hodes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to the BookNotes Plus podcast. Please rate and review BookNotes Plus and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c span.org.